trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, (laughs) even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. I wonder if this is an okay place to start. I know it's a topic that you've thought about. Any thoughts on regrets? Yeah, regrets. I I have been trying to think about it. I, I feel, um, I guess I feel very defended against the idea of regrets in some ways. I can't make my way through the kind of like, um, the sort of problem of like, you know, obviously I've made a lot of mistakes in my life and my life has like turned out in a particular way. And there's always that sense that like your life couldn't have turned out this way if you hadn't made the regrets, you know, if you hadn't made the mistakes that you that you ultimately made. But obviously that's like a very uh, sort of like hallmark version of a, like some people make mistakes that haunt them forever. And it's not like, oh, your life turns out great anyway. So those mistakes were actually like a blessing in disguise. You know, it's like, right, if you like fucking kill somebody with your car because you're like playing with the radio and not paying attention, like that probably doesn't like help you turn out for the best. You know, like that's that's probably like, there's a kind of narcissism around like, to move past your regrets is sort of gratifying to be like, oh, my life's great. So like everything I did that was fucked up, like in a way it was good that I did that. You know, there's like a kind of very gratifying like mythology around that. Your necessary delusion. Why do you keep lying to yourself? Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc. And when I first found out that my little brother was joining the military, I got so upset with his decision. I was so scared for him that I lashed out and said something that has driven a wedge between us for years. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. And you guessed it, today we are talking about regrets. It's such a big conversation. I can't imagine this is the only episode that we make about this. So maybe this is a delusion, but I will be considering this episode regrets version one because I'm afraid I'm going to regret my regrets episode, basically, I think is what I'm saying. But let's get it going. Regrets. We all have them. I regret most things I do at night every day. Who has no regrets? I don't have any regrets. (laughs) I don't regret the actions that I've taken. But I just regret taking so long making the same mistake. I really take a long time to make decisions because I know about my regret. Stop regretting a future that has not happened yet. Regrets are just a part of who a person is. And it's like, you know, layers of an onion. You're sort of like all of these people all of the time. Regret. Noun. 
A feeling of sadness, repentance, or disappointment over something that has happened or been done. The definition makes regret sound pretty simple, but if you unpack it, feeling sadness, repentance, or disappointment, these are all things that so many of us try to avoid, and therefore regrets are usually surrounded by a thick cloud of delusion. There's a part of me that wanted to speak something about regrets, just because of the blurb, first of all, that you put, right? Regrets was on a list of topics that I sent out to some of our storytellers. By each topic, I wrote a blurb to inspire the brainstorm and kick off the conversation. Here's Raina. You have on here, let's talk about our regrets. No regrets is a necessary delusion. It's probably a healthy necessary delusion that forces us to look forward instead of behind us. But we've all got regrets about certain things. So we're exploring the delusions that led you to your greatest regrets and the way the regrets themselves have shaped your story moving forward. At least that was the idea. You may find the reality of this episode to feel slightly different. But here's what's interesting. When I first read that, I said, I don't have any regrets. <laughs> Which is the first introduction to your delusion of regret. I, I mean, I just read the blurb and I still wasn't listening. Yeah. This is what's so deep about this is literally the part that says it's probably a healthy, necessary delusion that forces us to look forward instead of behind us. And I'm like, mm, no, I'm pretty sure I just don't have any regrets. And it's like, it's ingrained. No regrets. You hear it all the time. It sounds so good to say. It's fast and breezy. No regrets. As a statement, it sounds like it's living, present tense, and it doesn't have time to stop or slow down. It's no regrets. There's an attitude about it that feels elevated. No regrets, like you have somehow risen above dwelling on your mistakes. No regrets. Or like you just don't give a fuck. It sounds cool and considered. You say it fast. No regrets. Like you've already weighed out your options and you've decided that you know who you are and you own the good, the bad, and the ugly. And regrets? do not have a place in that story. Delusion! The whole like no regret thing is just like, it's just like an idea that people toss around like, oh, yeah, no regret, you know, I'm just gonna go for it. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to kiss the girl. I'm, I'm gonna have this last shot even though I know I'm, there's no regrets. Like I'm just like living my life recklessly. Yeah, YOLO. It's, it's just like another form of you only live once basically for a lot of people. And do you feel like you lived by that in a past life? Yes, but but also no, in that like the idea of like regretting something I was doing didn't manifest for me. Like on, it didn't on, occur on to you. Level. Like I, I I never considered that like I'm gonna regret this tomorrow. I just like did it and I just assumed everything would be fine. My buddy Russell from college. You can hear about some of his regrets in the episode Tenacious Drinker in season one. Another way I conceptualized regret as I maybe got a little bit older, but was still in the throes of my like kind of active addiction stuff, I would say, you know what, I'm just gonna do this. And the consequences of this, that's later Russell's problem. This Russell can only do what this Russell is going to do or not do right now. He's not answering to later or before Russell. I, I can't actually change something that's happening in the future right now. Delusion. And Russell lived that way for a long time with no regrets, N-O mostly because he was completely unaware of them. I was unaware of regrets. I would say to the point probably that like things that I did regret from my youth, I don't think I could have like told you what they were at the time or owned up to them in any like really like, reasonable way. As this episode has come together, it occurs to me that no regrets is a bit of a misunderstood or overrated headline. In fact, I was reading about a survey launched in 2020 by Daniel Pink and his research team 
they apparently surveyed 15,000 people in 105 countries with the question, how often do you look back at your life and wish you had done things differently? And only 1% of people said they never feel regret. Here's my friend Madison. I think that no regrets is a, a philosophy I don't think I understand because it doesn't serve my life. <laughs> because if you have no regrets, I understand that for some people it's about like, I'm putting everything out there. I'm going to take all the chances I can. And that's the kind of person I don't understand. <laughs> so for me, I think if you're living a no regrets lifestyle and don't have regrets, I, I think you might be a sociopath because I think everybody has things that they regret. Sometimes I think back to the Sylvia Plath analogy of the fig tree, where you're sitting in the cradle of this fig tree trying to decide which fig to take, which path in your life you want to take. And as you're deciding, they're shriveling. You know, once you choose a path, you can't choose the other. So you might be, I don't know, maybe it's not a regret, but how do you not wonder what if I chose another path or what if I did something different? <sighs> I don't know. I'm just a person who lives with a lot of regrets. I love the story about the fig tree. All of the paths that we have chosen in our lives and all of the others that have shriveled up and disappeared in our neglect. Or all of the paths that we have stayed on for too long that have kept us from exploring other paths. My wife, Pow. Oh, yeah. The biggest, biggest, biggest one probably be. And I say this with a lot of love and respect, but for my previous relationship, I really wish I hadn't taken so long to get out of that relationship because one thing led to other things and I just wish that when I had made the choice a couple years before it actually ended that I would have left it at that and then just moved on maybe I would have found you earlier there's a nice delusion maybe she would have found me earlier but truthfully probably not Pow and I met on a dating app and got married 11 months later the timing was very much in our favor Previously, I had been married and she had been engaged. We had both been with those people for five years, and I relate so much to what she's saying. I have often looked back at that relationship thinking of all of the hard lessons I learned and thought to myself, why did it have to take five years? Couldn't I have woken up to most of that stuff after two years? But such is life. Why do you think that regret means so much to you? I think because that breakup was traumatizing for so many other social aspects that had to do with age. In our relationship, like freezing my ex was like a huge conversation that I didn't necessarily feel passionate about, but he did. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I was allowing myself to get wrapped up in things that were really not important to me, that were more important to him. like. Being in the Orthodox Jewish community. Her previous fiancé had been Jewish, and Pau was born to a Catholic family in Mexico. She was in the process of converting in preparation of their marriage. Things that I really didn't think were that important in my life to be mm -hmm. happy. And uh, that's a huge regret because I, I mean, I learned a lot of good things. The conversion forced me to be more humble in a way that I was conditioned to dress and walk and talk in a specific way, in a humble way, and, and to judge less and listen more. Anger management was a huge thing also. And I think a lot of it had to do because in Judaism, they take gender roles very, very seriously. They take what? Oh, gender roles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like women have their role for a reason and men have a, their role for a reason. And that made sense to me. Not that it was aligned with the way that I grew up, mm -hmm. but 
I was not opposed to that idea until it crossed the line where I was like, hold on a second. You and I are no different. Like I need to be treated with the same respect and the same level that a man. So she let herself go down that path, appreciating so many aspects of Judaism along the way. And maybe it was that appreciation, those rose-colored glasses, that kept her from seeing the imbalance for so long. It also came with a little bit of unnecessary trauma that I feel like I would have been totally fine with not gaining the good things because then the little trauma that came with it would have not been part of it. Can you talk about the trauma? Well, I think the trauma was more like that was a stage in my life where I doubted myself the most. And that's when I started to realize I I had to take some time to step out of that mentality and just be like, wait a second, this is not who I am. This is not who I used to be. And then just really put things into perspective and be like, why am I becoming this? What is it even, is it adding to my life or is it taking away from my happiness and who I really am? And as soon as I was able to answer that question, I was like, oh shit, now how do I get out of this? You want to be able to accept the highs and lows of your own path. But I'll admit, before I met Pau, I would get very hung up on my regret of wasted time in my past relationship. It obviously wasn't working, and it took patience and maturity for me to see the benefits of my own timeline. And even though Pau says she feels a lot of regret for following the wrong path for so long and the trauma that came from it, it seems like a lot of the lessons she learned in that experience have stuck with her. When I was going through the conversion, I, I really learned to stop myself from making certain comments that just kind of shaped me up to be a little bit more gentle. There was a maturity to the process that I actually enjoyed. And I've kept some of it, but inevitably I've gone back to who I used to be, you know, joking around and you know what I like, <laughs> you know, my kind of humor. At the end, when you realized hey, this is turning me into a person that I'm not. I'm losing a part of myself through this process. What part of yourself did you feel like you were losing? What was the most significant part of yourself that you felt like you were losing? My cultural roots, primarily, and traditions. You know, I was in the moment that I was suppressed to do things that brought me closer to my people and my family. That's when I said I have a problem with that. And the moment that it caused sadness in those people also, that's when I said something's absolutely wrong here because it's keeping me away from my loved ones and closer to a community that I just started to get to know. How does that even make sense? It's supposed to bring, to bring something extra wonderful to my life, not to be taking something that was already wonderful. I think about like terrible things I've done to like women in my life, for example, not terrible, like the grand continuum of terrible things you can do to women. But, you know, being an asshole, being flaky, being changeable, not understanding my feelings and acting like, you know, poorly as a result of not understanding my feelings. And it's like, you know, now I'm married to this like incredible person. And it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, that was like, I needed to like go through all of that to like become the kind of person who could like, you know, but in reality, I actually feel like most of the time, like, I, I would feel like compelled if I ever saw them again to be like, when I was 19, I was an asshole. And I'm sorry. And I haven't forgiven myself for those things. Or I mean, I don't, I don't know how to qualify them as like, regrets, or not regrets. But but I don't feel like, oh, it was good that I did that ultimate. Like, I genuinely don't, you know, feel that way. I feel like you were a dick and you got away with it. It's sort of, sort of the feeling I have. You were a dick and you got away with it. Sounds like a regret to me. 
Don't judge Marcus, Earth Monster. It sounds like a scandalous confession, but he's not talking about committing crimes here. He's talking about being inconsiderate, being young and dumb and selfish. And what's interesting to me is that he says he hasn't forgiven himself. Really, just to go right into it, you know, you and your wife have had this thing. You have a sign on your wall that says, no regrets, but some regrets, Mm -hmm. which is so well put. And I think that that statement really made me consider what it is about regrets that I can't say no regrets. And it's too blanket of a statement. There's more nuance in it. Who has no regrets? My friend Jean Louise calling the voicemail from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Sometimes I wake up in the morning just teeming with regrets from really just one period of my past that seriously haunts me. But I think a lot about regret and a lot about the things that happen to us in life that put us on a different path that are so life altering. You know, sometimes things happen and there's just like really serious, long lasting consequences. You have experiences that really stick with you and you live with regret. And yeah, I have a lot, a lot of regret. Uh, but I think uh, self-forgiveness is maybe a very valuable thing that I have uh, learned from my uh, deep feelings of regret. Uh, yeah. Self-forgiveness. It seems like the obvious direction to take this conversation, right? Jean's not alone in that. That's what I thought. I thought, let's talk about our regrets, make them feel universally shared, and then steer our conversation conveniently in the direction of acceptance and self-forgiveness. It seemed like a decent arc for an episode, but life isn't always that tidy. We just like to think it is. And maybe the idea of holding on to regrets doesn't get to be easily cleaned up with forgiveness. This is something that comes up in my practice a lot where I encounter people who like... His practice, Marcus is a psychoanalyst. I, full disclosure, I have like very negative feelings about the word closure and and I have very negative feelings about the word like moving on in that way. Like I think there's a kind of fantasy that we all have where it's like our life is sort of linear as opposed to like layered the way like a mountain is sort of layered. Layered like a mountain, like dripping wax, dripping and drying and building on top of itself. You used to be this person, and now you're no longer this person. Now you're a different person, as opposed to just being like the totality of everything you've ever done. Maybe life isn't linear. We don't get to run away from the past. Life is like a mountain of dripping wax. We are the totality of everything we've ever done. I think you can be connected to bad things you've done or or regretful things you've done that you're working toward forgiving yourself for and that you use to inform your behavior now. And then to your point, right, maybe privately you stew on it now and again, or you realize you took a step back. And But I think there's a, f- a very gratifying fantasy that those things can be like erased. The idea that our bad behavior can somehow be erased is nothing more than a very gratifying fantasy. I was driving in San Francisco and I was on the phone with my best friend and her sister. And I was definitely upset about something. I mean, I was upset, but not at them. So I'm venting. So I'm in that kind of vibe. I'm driving and there is a stop sign. I do stop, but there is a woman who is pregnant who was crossing with her mother. And I guess she felt a little bit probably scared that I wasn't really going to stop. She did a very aggressive kind of like put her hands on the hood of my car and then flipped me off and continued to walk. Instantly, the rage soared through my body. I got out of my car, out of my car, just left it, 
and I began to walk slash chase the pregnant woman and her mother down the street. <laughs> now this is by Golden Gate Park. So we're not like in a like downtown sort of San Francisco thing. I start going off. I'm telling this story in a really nice voice so that you know that I'm still a nice person. <laughs> the story is horrible. How are you talking to her? I was like, ooh. I was like, bitch, don't ever fucking flip me off. You don't know who the fuck you're fucking with. You're out here in the streets pregnant and you're going to flip a stranger off. Bitch, I should cut you right now. Like, I was going off on her. It wasn't good. And I and that was louder than that. Raina, have you ever cut anyone? No. I wanted her to be scared. There's Sometimes there's something, you know what it is? This is a secret. I don't know why I have to. Sometimes there's something about being an African-American person where you still want white people to be scared of you. It's almost like our little moment of reparations. And we're losing that power because these fools are out here not scared anymore. But when you have an opportunity where you want to test it, you just see like, I hope she does think that I would cut her. Let's find out. So I'm now walking after her. Basically at a certain point, her mother turns around and does this screech of desperation. I mean, think of like a bird that is just like, please don't kill me lion. And she goes, Shit. Oh, because I think I was calling her fat or something, the woman. And so, so then the, she goes, she's pregnant, right? And she does this like cry. And I was like, and I stopped because I realized she was pregnant. And I guess then I was like, well, even more reason. If you're her mama, you need to tell your fucking pregnant daughter not to be such a bitch. I just went off. And then at that moment, I said, okay, Raina, it's time to turn around. There are police in Golden Gate Park. You can get arrested for this. And also... Where's your car? But luckily, I was on the phone with my best friend and her sister the entire time. And they were like, go back to your car. Like they were like woo-sawing me from the other side. And this was also one of the moments where I realized I had to really return into therapy. Because none of that is normal. I don't want to normalize any of this or be like, this is, I'm a Sag. No, that's not, we're not putting this on horoscopes. This is mentally not stable, not dealing with your angers, your emotions in healthy ways and projecting them onto pregnant strangers on the street. It's not healthy. What was the feeling that made you get out of the car? You felt disrespected or you felt... Oh, I don't like when someone makes me feel like I did something wrong when I didn't. Bitch, I stopped. I did stop and I wasn't going to hit you. I've never hit anybody. And then you hit my car? Oh, bitch, no, not today. Not right now after I was just all upset. In retrospect, could you see it from her point of view? She's pregnant. She's uh, walking. Totally. Probably felt scared. Terrified. And she is protecting a being that is growing inside of her body. You want to talk about pressure. Every She doesn't even want to trip on a pebble because she might hurt or harm her baby. Of course, I'm like now like, how could you threaten a pregnant woman? I mean, I wouldn't threaten a pregnant dog. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh my God, she's probably stressed out. Let's let her rest. Does she need a hot water blanket? Like now I healed so much of my audacity to allow my trauma to re-traumatize. Because as we know, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. And luckily, like I said, I had my best friend and her sister on the phone to also be like, that's not normal behavior. And you're going to get arrested. So what a great story to break down for this. So regrets. Oh, I regret that. I regret it. But see, here's the part about regret. If that had not have happened, what worst thing would have happened? Because it was that moment and it being accountable 
because I was on the phone to then get into therapy. So this is where you get all like, you know, goo goo, roo roo, woo woo, where you're like, but maybe I needed that moment. And luckily nothing happened to the girl. I was not carrying a knife. I did not plan to cut her. And my car was fine, didn't get a ticket. She probably was like, what the hell? But we all did survive. <laughs> I think now if I was there seeing that, I would have protected the pregnant woman. And I'd have been like, bitch, what the fuck is your problem to me? That's now who I am, which is kind of interesting to think of yourself. If you were in that moment of regret, now who would you side with or who would you look at or who would you whatever? But then I would have been like her little savior and like got in front and be like, uh, you're not stabbing anybody. You're tripping. I'm not about to call the police on myself. <laughs> Don't judge Raina, you complicated, selfish, imperfect earth monster. We've all got stories. And that was a great one for us to think on. Threatening a pregnant stranger in the street. It got Raina into therapy. It was a catalyst moment that has led to a more thoughtful version of her. But it also doesn't change what happened. Raina can forgive herself, and it still doesn't change what happened. So what do we do with these stories? I think that's also largely a cultural thing. I mean, I don't think our society knows what to do with people who have like made mistakes. I mean, not to get like hot, but like I think a lot of the sort of like contemporary stuff around, you know, erasing people or to use a word I despise, like canceling people or the anxiety around that, however real or imagined that is, is connected to this idea that it's like, I think in America right now, it's not clear what it means or what you're entitled to when you make a mistake. That's a good question. What are we entitled to when we make a mistake? Are we entitled to move on? How bad of a mistake did you make? Did you apologize? Did they forgive you? Did you forgive yourself? Do you know how to settle that idea within yourself that you were the bad guy? People don't want to feel defined by their mistakes. On the one hand, on the other hand, like how could you not be defined by your mistakes? There's like more of like this issue of like taking ownership over what you've done and like using it to inform yourself going forward or whatever. Like I think about people who make mistakes and then like dedicate their lives to sort of like grappling with those mistakes. What mistakes have you made? Do you grapple with them? Maybe you don't like that word. Do you find yourself thinking about them, playing them over in your mind, never daring to say them out loud? Or maybe you talk about them a lot, try to devalue them with chatter, or normalize their sound. How close is the mountain that you are to the mountain that you expected to become? When haven't things gone your way? I have a lot of anxiety, Matt, so I regret most things I do at night every day. And will I regret like something totally normal I say on this podcast? Absolutely. You know, so I think I, I think I live with uh, a large amount of small regrets. <laughs> That, you know, sometimes maybe dissolve, but they feel like a large mountain. You know, they add up to a mountain yeah. of large regrets. In terms of like actual regrets, I think I think they're good to keep with us because that old phrase, if you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it, right? And I think, of course, they could go the other way. Regrets could ruin your life when you stew on them too long. But I think keeping those regrets with you as a reminder that, this is something that happened. This is something that you don't want to do again, I think is useful. And it's finding that balance between acknowledging what you've done in the past, whether that's a mistake or how you were cruel to somebody or what you didn't do. Acknowledging that, remembering that, and stewing in that feeling of regret and guilt and shame or you know disappointment. And I don't know how I don't know how to find that balance. Uh 
I think that's kind of the struggle of life, right? <laughs> Where you're you're trying to be a better person every new year. But every year, my resolution is to be better and be kinder. And not that that always happens, not that I always achieve that dream, but you know, that's that's something that I'm striving for. And how do you look at the things that you've done previously in your life and say, those were mistakes, those were bad things that I can't change and move forward? Can you unpack better? I guess somebody who does less harm and more good. I think maybe my uh, philosophy on forgiveness maybe sort of encompasses some of, I think, my wider philosophy. I grew up in the Bible Belt where, you know, forgiveness is key. You have to forgive people who have done you wrong. I think that's so stupid. Why is it on someone who has been wrong to forgive somebody who has wronged them, especially if they have not asked for it? So I sort of see friendship relationships of any kind as kind of a tapestry constantly being woven. And, you know, any fights or hurts or grudges are a mar in that pattern, are an error in that pattern. You know, the thread gets tangled. And hopefully once you look at the large tapestry, you can look at it and, and go, oh, that's what makes this special, which makes it unique. But sometimes there's such a large mar, so many, so many errors in the pattern that it's not worth continuing on the tapestry. So I think forgiveness for me is only something that is given if you choose to continue that friendship, that relationship. And I think that sort of goes to regrets in a way that you're going to do things in your life that people are going to say this tapestry is no longer worthwhile. And you have to accept that you will always be that person. You will be frozen in time for somebody as the villain in their story. And you sort of have to keep that feeling with you and say, I don't want to be that anymore. I don't want to be somebody who causes harm. I don't want to be somebody who hurts other people. And so I think that's sort of, <laughs> I'm always working on the tapestry of my own life, how to communicate better, how to enforce my boundaries better, how to, I don't know, connect to people better. So just, yeah, I see life and friendships and <laughs> everything as this, yeah, kind of tapestry that's yeah. always in progress and never finished. Real life stories are not clean. They stop and start and hide and begin again. And when you live recklessly, eventually the mistakes you have put into action are going to catch up with you. All of these regrets start to get dug up when you become sober and you start like realizing, you know, the, to be cliche, like the trail of destruction you've like left behind yourself in the years leading up to having that moment of clarity or like finally getting out of the bottle long enough to like have like a clear view on what's going on around you. And it just, it completely fucked me. You could say these were later Russell's problems. And this was later Russell. After years of drinking and drugging, he got sober and as his life came back into focus, he found himself to be a crushing mountain of regrets. I discovered regret at like its like most pure, like concentrated form. Because when you go through like a addiction recovery program, you are forced to like just talk about like all of the things you did during your active addiction, the consequences of it, like what like how it affected other people in your life, and even people like withdrawn from you sometimes, like how like it hey, like this uh, EMT had to come pick you up like off of the street after you'd been like stabbed in a drug deal gone wrong. And like, how is that going to affect like their cortisol levels and blood pressure for the day? Cortisol, simply put, is the primary stress hormone. In getting sober, later Russell began to look at the ways that his self-destructive behaviors had affected others. 
and he felt bad about it. I went into like a highly internally disruptive and, and kind of scarily dangerous low of depression. I would just break down in tears or crying apropos of nothing or just like while watching anything or just like becoming cognizant of my isolation or loneliness at that time. It like, and I just, I would not be able to get out of these like 20, 30, like hour long, like weeping jags. I would, you know, I'd be on the phone to whoever I didn't feel like I had like worn out my welcome with the most at that point. And that, by the way, is just growing other like regrets. Like, like now I feel bad that I've like thrust this upon someone who I owe an apology to and they're still trying to like help me. I got to like a very bad place. I was, I was missing days of work sometimes because of little things that would kind of trigger like a completely uncontrollable emotional response. But I was still going to an AA meeting every day and like listening to other people's stories that like reminded me of things like you think of how you did like your siblings dirty or like your parents who clearly were trying to help you and love you at some point uh and it just gets worse and worse and worse and then i was taking like i think i was taking 150 milligrams of wellbutrin three times a day wellbutrin is an antidepressant it can treat depression and help people quit smoking it can also prevent depression caused by seasonal affective disorder I really don't know anything about this. I found that definition directly on the internet. I kept calling my doctor and being like, it's not work. I did nothing's changing like after weeks. And they just go, okay, well take another dose now. Like in like the middle of the day to the point where I was just like, I was, I think taking maybe slightly more than you're supposed to like safely take. I don't think they would not instruct me to actually do that, but at like the tippy top of, of what you should be safely taking. And that's, that's just to help stabilize mood and like deal with anxiety. It, it took a while to kick in. And when it kicked in was like when I finally walked away from going to the AA meetings actively. I'd gone through the steps once already and was like starting it again. And my sponsor was like a nice guy, but otherwise just, just some bro. And I was like, I need to like not go to any meetings for a while. Just a reminder, we're not giving any advice here. And it sounds like the program was helpful to Russ. He went through all the steps, but at a certain point, it was the regret that was overtaking him that was keeping him from being able to get healthy and move on. I tried to order Chinese food and I got like the woman on the phone and I, I'm looking at the menu in my hand and I just keep going. And um, um, uh, like I like my brain wouldn't fire the response to finish a sentence sometimes because it was it was so polluted by like grief chemicals basically. And that's like when I started getting kind of freaked out. He couldn't shake it. And when he did, then he wasn't dealing with it. The stories haunted him and made him feel bad. You've been there. Er, I have. So, I think the details of this memory are conveniently escaping me right now. It happened probably seven years ago. I was at work, and it was probably right before I got married and or divorced, and I was just all ego, me against the world. I probably had a real problem with myself, but I was projecting it on everybody, you know? I was jealous of everybody, thinking that they were getting things that I deserved, and there's this guy who could not have been any more different than me, and something came up about cars or coolness or something, and I had just, just leased an Audi and it was my first cool car. I don't remember how the conversation went, but we were all sitting around and I felt snubbed somehow or something. I think my line was, I drive a fucking Audi, what do you drive? You did not. 
No, you did not. I said oh, that. Oh, God, no. I drive a fucking Audi. What do you drive? It makes me puke a little bit. And why do you say that? Because I was insecure. Because I was angry. But what triggered it? I, I bet you didn't just burst into the office and said that. Like, no. You said something that made you feel insecure and then you retaliated. Yeah, I think that we were all sitting around. It was like a big group of us at the office and it was a pretty aggressive environment at the office like joking around with each other and stuff. When I had started there a few years before, I would say I helped lead that trend. I have this theory that every CEO emulates themselves in the people that they hire. Our CEO was a loud-mouthed, ego-driven celebrity. He would run up on you while you were sitting at your desk in the morning. He'd put his phone in your face barking, what the fuck you doing with your life? while he broadcast your response on Snapchat. <laughs> we would make fun of each other's clothes openly. We were all crossing lines, and for the most part, it was all good-spirited. Except, my personality had gotten toxic. I wanted more from my career. I thought I deserved more. My fiance and I were not connecting. We hadn't been for years. I had gotten so hung up on this idea that I had about how my life was supposed to look, and in retrospect, it was that delusion that was keeping me from becoming the person that I was meant to be. This is an angry guy, you know? Sometimes we don't know it's anger what we feel. No, I, I was happiness. so caught in a delusion at that point. I thought I was the good guy, but those words haunt me. How do you respond to that? I think that some people were surprised that I said it and acted like, oh, but I think it also sort of fell kind of flat because it sounded so bad funny. right away. It felt bad as soon as I said it. Oh, you felt bad as soon as you said it. No, no, no. I didn't feel bad for him. I heard it as soon as I said it and I just thought, douche. <laughs> oh, okay. You know what I mean? Like, it didn't sound good. But you couldn't take it back anymore because you were, like, already... No, it was already out there. I will never be able to take it back. That happened. I said that. It was like an instant of anger, and I lashed out. I drive a fucking Audi. What do you drive? <laughs> and the words just hung in the air, That's and I was That's such an L.A. Like, line. Oh, it's real. so gross. It's, like, the you, grossest thing I've ever said. You integrated yourself to the shallow world. And also, I will say, I am gross in a lot of ways, but that is not usually the way that I'm gross. You know, I'm not usually that, like... No, I'm surprised because that's not something that you would usually... That's not who you are. It's, like, something was triggered there that you feel like, I must say this because I don't have anything else to use against this guy. Yeah, there was, like, a lot of, like, status that way in that mm. office. Like, brands and stuff like that. And I had never played into it. And then I somehow ended up just, like, tried out being the worst version of myself with that. Yeah. In front of everybody. Funny fact, and I only notice this on social media because it's so perfect, but that guy at work that I was so jealous of and I said that gross thing to, he recently traded in his minivan and is now driving a Maserati. <laughs> True story. Let's talk about uh, closure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's adjacent to that kind of narcissistic fantasy that like, you know, I'm really trying also not to talk about eternal sunshine during this conversation because it feels like 20 years too late to try to work that into a conversation. But no, I think it's a classic. Yeah. I mean, I think people fundamentally have a wish that they can like erase aspects of themselves, a, a delusion about being able to erase aspects of themselves. 
I fell down rollerblading when I was 11 years old and uh, I busted up my left elbow really badly. And I have like that really intense, like crazy, because I didn't take care of myself at all because I was 11. That weird, like spider webby, like scarring on like my arm because I just like I like got like a road rash going down like a fucking hill on rollerblades because I couldn't fucking stop on roller. I never figured out how to stop on rollerblades. And it's like you know I survived. Obviously, my arm is fine, thankfully, and uh, I don't think about that ever. But like I do have like you know a one and a half, two inch like circumference, like giant piece of scar tissue on my elbow. Like our lives are permanent. Like you, you do something and you're formed by that thing. And so it, it feels like the wish for closure to me and a lot of the language around that feels like a very gratifying desire to like get rid of parts of ourself. Whereas I think, you know, like in psychoanalysis, the word integration gets used a lot that like the sort of goal is not to split off the parts of yourself you don't like, but to almost like feed them in and like sort of the way scar tissue forms, like you sort of like hold and the goal is to kind of take the things that cause you to kind of suffer um, or the very things that you want to erase are the very things that should be kind of like integrated into your person. Again, it's a kind of false cognitive dissonance where it's like we can forgive ourselves for things and be compassionate toward ourselves about things while also not denying the existence of those things. Most people feel like they, there's a desire to do the inverse, which is to like never think about this again and pretend ultimately like it never happened. And, you know, I think that that is a function of a kind of narcissism. To me, closure is like adjacent to forgiveness, that forgiveness doesn't really exist. In our society, you see people sort of get away with things. Or you see people just get completely decimated by things. But that's very extreme, like everything in our country. Like it's totally schizoid. It's split also. There isn't like this person did this thing and they atoned and they're doing this like very holistic thing where they're like moving past this thing. But, you know, like wrestling with it and thinking about it and atoning for it. It's like you, you either like completely get away with murder or you like spend your life in prison. There's like there isn't a lot of like space. And I think there's a real terror that, right, if people know about the mistakes that we made, you'll get like ripped apart by them. I think it's a very justified fear for a lot of people that it's like you won't you won't be able to you know survive this experience. Why don't you describe your your tattoos to me? Okay, so uh, I have these two tattoos. They're on the inside crooks of where my elbow bends, so they kind of like fold into each other. The one on my right arm says "No Grief," K N O W, no. And then same thing over here, but it says no regret. And in this case, it's like a very childishly drawn rainbow over the the horizon above the no. So it's K-N-O-W, no grief, no regret. K-N-O-W, regret. Heavy and concise. Each statement is accompanied by a childlike drawing. Above no grief is a half sun, and above no regret, a rainbow. Both tattoos are written upside down so that Russell can read them when he looks down at his arms. This was the message that he felt compelled to remind himself of after he stopped drinking, but was still searching for a new way of coping. I, I was like, you know what? I keep running away from like my grief and my regret. Like I gotta stop running away from I have to like embody it. I just have to let it wash over me because if I just keep trying to force this thing away, like I won't grow. Like there's no growth without like excising a piece of cancerous tissue to let like healthy like tissue grow back in. It was the middle ground that he was looking for between being taken over by the crippling anxiety of his regret and running away from it. He wanted to get to know it. Learn from it? Sure, why not? But more than that, he wanted to embody his regret. And that was like what it was born out of. I was just like, I need to know regret. I need to know grief. Because you know who doesn't deal with regret and grief? 
children who don't have like any control over their emotions. They have like no emotional intelligence or an ability to deal with like real world stressors that cause anxiety, heart attack, stroke, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, you're not a fucking child. And, and then I was like, and the best way I should like, uh, commemorate this is like getting a friend from back home to like tattoo it on to my arms. Delusion! They were just like a, another manifestation of like this weird time where I tried to like worship someone that I believed I was in love with to the point where I altered the, you know, the face of my flesh. Oh, that's right. The specific story around the tattoos were born from an almost manic-like episode that Russell had while trying to win back a woman he believed he loved. The woman didn't come back, and as it turned out, it really wasn't about her in the first place. It was about Russell, wrestling with his past while simultaneously forging a path for his future. His new story scrawled out on the insides of his arms. Am I getting the sentiment right, though, for No Regrets, K-N-O-W? Is it meant to inform the past, present, and future? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's in present tense, you know, like, yeah. no regrets. It's not like known or knowing yeah, at yeah. some point. It's, yeah. it's, it's just supposed to be in perpetuity. I think I saw a Snickers commercial where some biker got a tattoo that said no regrets. And then I just thought of this. I was like, oh, I should, yeah, no regret, no grief. Embody them whenever I can so that I grow to be a stronger, more vibrant person. This conversation isn't about absolutes. Are regrets good or bad? Should we learn from them or dwell on them or push them out of our minds to move forward? Should we forgive ourselves or never forget? All of the above, I think. For me, the lesson lives in the nuance. It reminds me of something my friend Rosie said recently about art and the natural, impactful, unique way that it touches us. I think that the history of art shows us that a lot of the heavy hitters that we grow up looking at and a lot of the work that touches us, a lot of that has to do with the place and time and being in that right place and the right time. There is no correct answer. There is no right way. To me, it sounds like a balance that we each need to find on a case-by-case basis. Self-forgiveness sounds healthy. I'll try to practice that, knowing that it doesn't erase anything. Closure is bullshit. I didn't see that one coming, but it feels true. No regrets, and oh, has its place when I need to dare myself to live. But the most universal truth that I will take away to incorporate into my story is that I will no regret. K-N-O-W. Regrets aren't my enemy and they aren't my best friend, but I know them. I want to thank all of our storytellers today. Marcus, Russell, Raina, Pow, Jean Louise, Madison. Tina was in there. Rosie we heard from. Uh, thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. If you have love for the show and you want to support us, you can send us 143 to at your necessary delusion on Venmo or... Write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's the Purple Podcast app. If you have a story or delusion of your own and you want to share it, or maybe you got some feedback on an episode, you can hit us up on our voicemail at 323-540-4540. Just like my friend Devin did at the last minute to share with us one of her biggest regrets. Here's Devin. Hey, it's Devin. I hope it's not too late, but I wanted to try to give a contribution as far as regret. I've always kind of had a really weird relationship with regret because I try not to regret things because, you know, you learn from your own mistakes. 
So how can I regret something that might not have been such a great memory, but it got me to where I am today, that type of thing. But I guess if I was really being honest with myself, I would say that I regret most standing in my own way, being too afraid to take chances when I was younger. So, you know, I just was afraid I would fail, so I didn't go to cosmetology school, that type of thing. Um, Or I, you know, I'm not very social, so I didn't think that I would do well in that field, even though it's something that I really was interested in. And then I also guess I regret, I tend to, you know, I've got like really bad anxiety, so I tend to uh, withdraw a lot of the time, kind of disassociate, and I have a very hard time living in the moment because I'm always worried about something bad that might happen. So I guess that's probably my biggest regret is just spending so much time of my life standing in my own way and not living in the moment and taking risks. And I just kind of hope that I'm teaching my kids to not be that way. I try really, really hard (laughs) to do that. So I hope that was a decent contribution. You know I tend to ramble. All right. Thanks. Bye. We will be back next week with more epic everyday stories of success and redemption. Until next time. Marcus, uh, biggest regret of all time. Go. I have so many. I have so many things that I wish I did differently. I feel like I had a real sea change in my life in like my late 20s like I just I don't recognize myself as like a younger person I don't feel I I mean this is like an ongoing thing that I like wrestle with like I don't I don't see my it's very hard for me to reach out and like touch who I was when I was like 20 I feel like just this sort of like wild like you know sort of uh troubled consequenceless person who um was very like id driven was very like impulsive and just like you know did however i felt like like i would like listen to a sad song and then that would cause me to like make major life decisions like based on like (laughs) being in a particular headspace like i just i don't feel i really feel empathy for teenagers like i think being an adolescent and being post-adolescent i never understood obviously intellectually like understood that until i got older but it's like I was just like wild, you know, I just, I don't think that I was like, I had no, I was lost. I was terrified. I was lonely. I didn't know what I believed in. I didn't feel like contained or understood by like my family at all. I definitely understand why like 19 year olds become like jihadists or shoot up shopping malls or kill themselves or do any of the things that they do. Like, I think it's, I think being an adolescent is like kind of a horror. So I feel very disconnected from that part of my life. And as a result, a lot of my choices and behavior feel quite strange to me. And I often like have a sort of like compassionate or sort of playful fantasy around like what it would be like to just like snap my fingers and be like 16 again and try to just like relive my entire young adulthood like very differently than I did. I don't know if that I often feel like when I envision or have that fantasy that like part of what I experience is I'm having the fantasy is that like just being in that milieu would like compel you to do a lot of the same things you did back then, even if you had your right mind, because like being a teenager, you're also just like in this crush of people and it's like hard to get out of that. But I feel like broad regrets, I would say, about a lot of uh, about a lot of things I did as a as a kid, mouthing off to people, being changeable, being flaky, et cetera, et cetera. Let me let me rescue 
you from yeah. uh, further answering this question. That was honestly, I, I was like, what's the most like provocative, pointed, personal question that I could push you into? It was a joke. I wasn't expecting you to answer any of it. And it's... I'll answer it. Yeah. Your answer right there is really... I'll start, reading you, off. I'll start reading you off the whole list. Zan and illusion.